we have gotten so divided that we don't trust institutions, we don't trust markets, and ultimately that is only going to, to hurt the very people who we think we might be helping. CEOs, on average, read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you're working toward your goals every single day. If you're ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at MentorBox.com today. There, you'll find courses from experts like Mahir Desai. Mahir is a professor at both Harvard Law and Harvard Business Schools, where he teaches and researches taxation and tax law. His work has been published far and wide. His writing and his presence have been featured on Bloomberg News, The New York Times, NPR, and much more. He has recently undertaken a mission to reconcile the American public and those that work in the financial sector. It feels as if the air was never cleared after the financial crisis a decade ago, and Mahir is here to remind us that the core principles of finance are also the core principles of humanity. We talk about literature, money, education, and more. So there's sure to be something for everybody here. Cheers. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Mentor Box Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, and today I am with Mihir Desai. He's a Harvard professor and the author of The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return. Mihir, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be with you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Tyler. So why don't you go ahead and give us a quick overview of the book. In a way, you're taking fiction, the canon, and literature and using that as a lens to look at modern finance. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it's with kind of two uh, goals in mind. You know, the first is I think we need to demystify finance. It's far too important to be esoteric, important to our country, important to our lives, important to the world. And in fact, a lot of people are demonizing finance and often out of ignorance. So I really wanted to demystify finance for people. And frankly, equations and graphs, which are the way we usually teach finance, aren't that helpful to a lot of people. And so the idea behind the book is to let people into these ideas, but in a much more accessible way. So instead of using kind of equations and graphs to think about risk management or options, we can use Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. So it's just a lot more accessible, hopefully. But the second idea is a little more ambitious, which is, I think, you know, we need to rehabilitate finance. Uh, there's a fair amount of value extraction happening in finance as opposed to value creation, especially 10 years after the financial crisis, people are still upset with finance and, and I think with good reason. So the goal here is to get people who are in finance to understand these ideas and understand their moral content. So sometimes in finance, we get lost in spreadsheets and screens and we forget that there are human beings um, behind all those things. And that is what the humanities do. The humanities provide the human dimension to a lot of activities. And so the idea here is to understand finance, but through the humanities. And in that process, hopefully, you know, try to humanize finance as well. I see. It's a very noble goal. I like that a lot. 
I can't wait to read the book myself, actually. I want to ask you if you feel that it is the financial crisis that really is the main catalyst to the overall negativity that people feel toward finance these days. Do you think that's really what it was the 10 years ago and now people feel a specific way? It almost has that stigma about it. Or has there always been a sort of lingering distrust of the people in the the big buildings in New York City? You can go back before there were even big buildings in New York City. So, um, you know, you can go way back and there's always been a little bit of ambivalence towards finance. Socrates would talk about the barrenness of money. In fact, my favorite quote in the book is probably from this guy who um, was writing in the 1700s when Amsterdam was the only real big financial market. And he was describing finance and he described it as kind of the most virtuous and the vilest profession in the world, the most (laughs) intellectually challenging and the dumbest. You know, it's always had this duality to it. I think what's happened in the last 10 years is that we've lost an appreciation for those positive parts. And that, I think, is what I'm trying to rectify. So finance has always been a little problematic, but at least people had a balanced sense of what was good and kind of good and bad about it. And I think what we've lost in that last 10 years is that. Do you think that the loss of that hope for positivity out of finance is or contributes in any way to the sort of divisiveness of politics these days? I recently read your Harvard Magazine piece on the Trump Administration Tax Act, the TCJA. Um, yeah. Do you think there's a that it contributes in that direction? Well, I think it kind of goes both ways, right? So it is an incredibly divided time. And so in part, what happens is people are upset about the way the world is working. And one of the scapegoats for that is the world of finance. And again, for some purposes, that's rightfully so. I just happen to think it's coming on a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. But, you know, more generally, you're putting your finger on something deep, I think, which is that one of the really unfortunate consequences of what's happening today is we have gotten so divided that we don't trust institutions, we don't trust markets, and ultimately that is only going to, to hurt the very people who we think we might be helping. And so today I'm, I'm really worried about that problem. You know, the book tries to, in some sense, speak to this broader concern about, you know, getting people in finance to behave better and getting people to understand finance better. Yeah. I want to give you a quick, I guess we can call it a vignette from my own childhood, because I think it's relevant here. Um, Very brief, I promise. But I remember a million times when I was young, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. I actually went to Boston University, so I spent some time in Boston as well. I grew up on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and Uh everybody in my town, it was kind of a lower middle class, middle class town, and everybody would refer to Massachusetts as Taxachusetts. And they would just complain about taxation. And I know that that is something that you teach at Harvard Law. Is that correct? You teach the taxation course? That's right. Yeah, I teach the tax law course. And I do work as an economist on tax policy. Yeah. And that ingrained in me a general confusion, but a distrust about institutions that dealt with money. And even though it, you know taxes is governmental and that sort of thing, it right away told me, okay, like if I start to deal with money, if I start to really think critically about this, it's just going to stress me out. It's going to piss me off. It's going to make me dislike what I'm learning in the institutions and the powers that be. And, and then I went and I studied literature in college. And since I've moved to Silicon Valley, I've learned so, so much more about finance and just the economy more broadly. And I'm really intrigued as to the perspective that you've taken here. Did you study any literature when you were a student or anything like that? 
Yeah, well, so actually I was um, I was a history undergrad. Oh, okay. And I actually came to economics late. And so there is a part of this book, which is kind of like a returning to my past. You know, when you get trained as an economist, you tend to start to distrust stories because you want data. And so part of what I did in writing this book is kind of reconnect to my older self and remember the kind of the power of of history and the power of literature and the power of philosophy and religion to kind of explain ideas. And so that's very much kind of the spirit of the book. So as an example, you know, when we talk about value creation and valuation, we do it using the parable of the talents from the Bible. When we talk about corporate governance, um, I use Mel Brooks and the producers, you know, so and lever leverage, which is a great topic in finance is about the Merchant of Venice and Jeff Koons and George Orwell. So it's a real mishmash of stuff. But I just want to return to your earlier point for a second, because I think it's really important, Tyler, which is, you know, we have the consequence of demonizing finance is that young people are not exposed to it and do not learn nearly enough about it and reject it kind of in the way you did. Yeah, like right? even the basic principles I felt exactly. I didn't want to engage with for most of my life until very recently, to be honest. Right. And honestly, I think that's kind of tragic, right? Because so many of the most important decisions you make are have a financial component to them, right? Of like course. how are you going to, and are you going to invest in your education? Is it worth it to invest in your education? But should you borrow? How much should you borrow? How are you saving? Or are you, you know, how do you think about when you want to retire? And yeah. it's a really, and as you know, these money issues and these financial issues are core to people's lives, to their marriages, to their families. And yet large chunks of the population just reject it as not being something they want to learn about. And of course, it's usually born of insecurity, right? Which is, I don't understand that, that stuff. I don't want to deal with that stuff. But that's really tragic because then people make mistakes and those mistakes are very costly. And so the book is not like a personal finance thing at all, but it is meant to kind of say, look, these ideas, when people talk about debt and they talk about options and they talk about all these ideas, it has it has analogs to the ways you already think about the world. And so hopefully that makes the ideas easier easier to understand. Yeah. And that's definitely something that I've noticed a lot of just, again, being in Silicon Valley and dealing with entrepreneurs and startups and all those sorts of things. Do you have a favorite sort of analog tale that you tell in the book? Oh, God, that's a great question. So my favorite, what is my favorite in the, in the book? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one that is a little bit off center, but I think it's really interesting, which is, you know, when I started to write the book, you have to really kind of rethink finance from its foundation, kind of in a new way. And I came to appreciate risk and insurance a lot more. So the story I begin with is about risk and insurance, and it's from the Dashiell Hammett book, The Maltese Falcon, and it's called uh, The Flitcraft Parable. And so in this Flitcraft Parable, you might have seen this movie. It's like a young Humphrey Bogart movie filmed by John Huston as well. So in this book, Sam Spade is a detective, and he's kind of a hard scrabble detective who doesn't talk too much. And he's talking to his prime suspect, who also happens to be um, his love interest. Um, because that's what happens to Sam Spade usually. And he says to her, you know, I want to tell you a story. And he says, I got a call from this woman once. And she said, um, my husband disappeared five years ago, right into thin air. He simply left in the morning and he never came home and he just disappeared. And that was five years ago. But today I just got a call from somebody in Spokane, Washington, who said they saw him. So Sam, I want you to go there and see if um, he's, if my husband is living there. 
So Sam takes the case, um, and this guy's name is Flipcraft, and he goes up to Spokane, Washington, and uh, he almost immediately finds the guy pretty easily, and he's changed his name to Charles Purse. And so Sam goes up to him and says, are you Flipcraft? And the guy is, you know, quick to confess, and he's actually kind of, you know, relieved to kind of confess. And then Sam says, so tell me what happened. So Flipcraft says, well, you know, I went out in the morning and I was walking to lunch. And as I was walking, an enormous iron beam fell from a construction site right next to me. And a piece of the sidewalk, in fact, jumped up in my face and left a scar on my face. And at that moment, I realized that my entire, uh, all of the world, in fact, is just random. And he said, you know, and my problem is that I've been living my life as if the world is well-ordered and the world is telling me that it's totally random. And so he says, okay, well, then I'm going to change my life at random in order to be in sync with the world. And he just decides to leave. And that's what happens. And then Sam says, he says to his, this woman he's talking to, he says, but, you know, my favorite part of the story is actually that when he found him in Spokane, this guy had basically recreated the same life that he had always had. Oh, okay. And so what's that story about? And so that is about kind of the fundamental presence of risk in our lives, which is unpredictability and chaos. And the way you navigate it is uh, by looking for the patterns. And in fact, kind of the, the clues to that story are buried in those names, Flipcraft and Purse, who are people who are really preoccupied with the insurance industry. So how do finance and insurance deal with risk? And it's an analog to how people deal with risk. And the answer is, you know, we look for patterns. So stock prices look random. All kinds of events look random, like when I die and when, when bad things happen to you. And the reality is, actually, they all behave according to pretty regularized properties. And if you look for the patterns in life, the normal distribution is one example of that, you can actually navigate a lot of risk and uncertainty. So the reason I like that story is, in fact, the fundamental human condition is just dealing with a totally random world. <laughs> and the answer to how you do that and deal with that is the answer that finance provides you with, which is you deal with it by looking for the patterns. Because by having experience and, and learning patterns, you can actually deal with the chaos of life, just like insurance companies do and just, just like we recommend in finance. So it's a long story, but I like it because it really makes it clear that finance is not some high-flying thing. It actually is very connected to the most important problems in our life, about randomness, about creating value, about the most important questions that usually confront us. Hey, I hate to interrupt this conversation with Mihir Desai, but I want to let you know where you can gain more financial wisdom. MentorBox has a series of videos on personal finance and institutional finance, but per usual, those are recorded exclusively for MentorBox members. If you want to access those and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com today. All right, back to the show. I want to apply that concept of randomness and zoom out a little bit, if you don't mind, because again, thinking about my own story, you know, my existence, my being born and raised where I was, was essentially random. And I think the fact that I've come to speak to you and have access to your book is significant. You know, that's indicative of a series of probably a series of patterns. And but ultimately, you know, it's it's a pretty random occurrence that you and I are talking right now, cosmically, if you will. And what I think a lot about when I think about, you know, finance and the complexity of it, the fact that I didn't understand it, and just the general feeling of the public toward people who work in finance is 
how many people just don't really have access to the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what I've heard a lot from people, again, in Silicon Valley is, and this is something that I saw a lot, just even in like memes when I was younger and, you know, on Facebook, people would post, you know, why isn't school teaching me how to balance a checkbook or how to um, understand my taxes, the very simple sort of principles of, of personal finance, that sort of thing. But I don't, I don't fully agree that, you know, every curriculum should be just like embedded in these things, which some people seem to suggest here. But I think that those would be very important or, or good to know from a basic sort of maybe general education in college, even in high school, having those principles built in there would be effective. And I'm wondering if you have any sort of similar thoughts or proposals even for culturally how we can increase the accessibility of financial understanding. Because like I said, you know, my access to this book was sort of random. This book I'm sure is going to do and is doing very, very well, but certain categories of people, certain groups of people may not have access to it. So is there, or just may not be able to learn of it. They may not find out about it. So how can we more widely make this sort of understanding, this humanistic understanding of finance more available? Yeah. So I think it's a great question. And, you know, I think there's lots to, lots and lots to be done. So, and in fact, you know, my daughter, who's now 10, really wants to work on a kid's version of this book, which I think would be huge fun. Really? <laughs> so and if that happens, I'll, wow. I'll let you know. Yeah. That's um, so cool. Yeah, it would be great. But, you know, I think, in fact, you're right. We need to take these ideas and make them more accessible. So I, I actually happen to have a former student out there who's doing great stuff on this dimension. She's got a company and a startup called Napkin Finance. And, you know, it's really, really fascinating. It does a lot of literacy in finance. And it, you know, it actually it draws on napkins all like the big ideas in finance. And she's doing really, really neat work. And it's, it's called Napkin Finance. And so I think we need to kind of bring it down to where people are, right? So the problem with finance is we tend to talk about it in highfalutin ways. What she's figured out and what I'm trying to do in this book is ways that will anybody can get into. And actually, it's kind of fun. Like you look at these drawings and you read these things <laughs> and she's like managed to make it really interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure there's something very casually psychologically accessible about, you know, just looking at a napkin. It's like low stakes. It's, it's exactly. not like a white paper you have to scroll through. I see how that could be effective. Yeah, and so she's doing some really great work. And I think that's the kind of thing where it's not just about making it simple. It's also, we, you know, we have to diffuse the anxiety around it because I think there's a lot of anxiety. Oh, and I think that's what she's figuring out how to do. And, and hopefully that's a little bit about what the book does as well. Interesting. I want to look that up as well. That's a really interesting idea. I like that a lot. It's called Napkin Finance. Great. And the reason I asked this question ultimately is because I think MentorBox is in the kind of the same realm of, yeah. you know, making these things more accessible, you know, cheaper cost than just like a formal education, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think needs to be done, again, on a sort of cultural level to rehabilitate finance? Because there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money in finance. And I think it's hard to understand the basic sort of logistics of it all and, you know, just the vocabulary. Sure. But it's also very hard to understand the impact and the complexity of what major institutions are doing. And I, are you digging into any of that in the book as well? Well, so the book that I wrote, which is the Wisdom of Finance book, is it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a wacky book, right? So it's like a mashup of how we can use the humanities to teach finance. The next two books are, I think, a little bit more in your direction. So one of which is coming out in March. It's called How Finance Works. And it actually kind of really takes 
the biggest ideas of finance and tries to explain them to people in business. And I think does it in a really novel way. And then the book that I'm just getting started on now is about how kind of finance went wrong. Because in a way, um, there's a huge chunk of finance, which is fantastic, but there are problems. And so that book is a little bit about, uh, which I also touch on in my book, the first book, which is about how finance kind of lost its way. And so that I'm hoping to be kind of a larger effort over the next 12 months or 18 months. I see. This may be more along the lines of when I asked earlier about, you know, the sort of political divisiveness and whether finance is contributing to that, because I think a lot of people have just become completely dispirited by the fact that, you know, finance may have gone wrong and that makes them feel as if it's just a, you know, uniformly bad institution. Right. Do you think this book will maybe address some of those negative feelings or that might be one of the goals, you know, a forthcoming book might be doing that? Oh, yeah, I think, well, this book hopefully does. I mean, I think, you know, as one example, I was really struck by this example from a philosopher from the last, phrase from the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, who wrote in his, uh, in one of his books, he wrote that, you know, it's like this really weird quote until you really think hard about it, which is, you know, he said, basically, if you really want to understand human beings, then you need to understand the creditor-debtor relationship because we've been doing it forever. And that process of obligating yourself to another is kind of the nature of what it means to be human. And so the reason I mention that is that's not the way we usually think about finance. Like we think about finance as some highfalutin thing that was invented like 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, of course. And his point is actually that process is something we've been doing forever. And I think the quote is, you know, it's, it's literally what it means to be a human being. And that's a really different way to think about finance, which is not as some horrible thing that was attached to us in the last 50 years by modern capitalism, but instead as something that is deep rooted in who we are and actually is quite humane. You know, so similarly, if you look at the options chapter, you know, it goes back 2000 years where we've been writing option contracts. It's not some newfangled thing. Diversification has been a principle that people have been using in old trading routes from the onset of shipping. The whole notion of, of leverage that the Merchant of Venice actually as an example is, is structured around you know, just like people who have debt obligations to each other. That's the play with Antonio and Shylock and Portia. And everybody has a, has a literal debt, you know, meaning there's, you literally owe people things. But of course, the people who study that play, you know, know that it's not really about debt. It's about commitment and it's about love. And in fact, you know, no, no Shakespearean play has used the word, uses the word love more than that play. Really? So, yeah. And that's all the word play about bond, you know, like my oh, bond to yes. you. And, you know, it's like all this. Um, and, and even on the body when Shylock, you know, talks about the pound of flesh. You know, that's a, that's a really different way to think about these things than the usual way we think about them, which is some evil lender has tricked me into borrowing something. I think if we understand debt in a, in a more thoughtful way, I think that can help us understand these decisions more generally. So are you, in a sense, trying to sort of carry on that legacy that Nietzsche started with saying that, you know, this well, returning to... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's a heady comparison. <laughs> I mean, not I like the that. entire Nietzsche <laughs> legacy, but are, is that what you're seeking to to tell people ultimately? It is something that we've lost, you know, and in part... And I, I talk about this at the very end of the book, right, which is it's really tragic how divorced the humanities and finance and economics have become. 
So people in finance often look down at the humanities, you know, as being kind of not that relevant to the world yeah, and yeah. so on and so forth. And then people, frankly, in the humanities look down on people in finance for operating in a grubby, nasty world where money is important, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a huge loss from those two folks, uh, sets of people in society not connecting on some deeper level about these topics. So, you know, in a way, the book is very much an effort to kind of reconnect, as I think they were once connected, you know, the ideas of, of finance and the ideas of humanities. So it is ultimately for both those audiences, then? It is meant to absolutely. And in fact, the, the greatest kind of pleasure in the book in writing the book has been people who, people who are totally outside of finance, who really enjoy it, but also the people who are deep in the weeds in finance and they kind of say like oh, i didn't really think about that you know i never thought about it that way and yeah. so it's funny because my publisher when i was getting ready to publish the book he you know he said you know who's the book intended for and i gave him the most annoying answer ever you know which was <laughs> which was everybody <laughs> um i used to work you know, in publishing is, i'm familiar right? with <laughs> and you know which is yeah. terrible like market segmentation analysis but my point was that Hopefully people in finance get something out of it by kind of thinking through what they do in a different way. And then hopefully people outside finance get something out of it as well because they get access, you know, access to a world that they hadn't hadn't had access to before. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a great talk from here. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to give My pleasure. a quick call out about the book, upcoming works, any things you'd like people to read or how they can learn more about you? Sure. Well, I'll give a call out for a couple of things. One is uh, the book is The Wisdom of Finance. I actually have an online course that we run through the HBX platform. It's called Leading with Finance. And I'm really proud of it. It's a totally different way to kind of study online. And it's HBX, which is our online platform at HBS. And it's called Leading with Finance. And the first book is going to come out in March and it's called How Finance Works. So any of those resources. And I'm also on Twitter as well, if you want to follow me. Great. What's your Twitter handle? Damn, I was worried you might ask me that. I think it's uh, <laughs> it's something horrible. It's like uh, they signed me here, A, because uh, I couldn't get anything better. Okay. I'll, I'll make sure that we, we get it right, and I'll, we'll, we'll figure it out for you. We'll make sure All right. we hear the correct one. But thank you so much for joining us. Again, this was a great conversation. Uh, all the listeners out there, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at mentorbox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.